As a child, did you ever wish you had X-ray vision or supersonic hearing? Well, if we had such abilities, they certainly would interfere with our normal way of living. God has designed our bodies perfectly for our environment on planet Earth. The first thing that comes to mind is that we're created in the image of God, to glorify God. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. Evolution teaches that mankind, and everything else for that matter, all got here by accident and random chance. However, the Bible tells us that we were purposely made by the hand of a loving God. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Join us for the next 15 minutes as we discuss the design of our bodies and our environment and see how they're a perfect fit. Dr. Albert Anderson is a physician and president of Creation Health Foundation. He says people are a unique creation. We're created in the image of God. We're created in that image to glorify Him by fulfilling our responsibility to carry out His dominion mandate of Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. We do know that since the fall of man, our bodies aren't perfect. Sickness, disease, and tragedy constantly threaten our well-being. Still, the human body was created perfectly, and is still perfectly suited for its environment today. So what are some examples of this well-fitted machine? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is the vertebral column that he designed for us to support an upright posture with free hands and a complex brain encased in a protective skull capable of abstract thinking to enable us to, first of all, control the environment, which would include things like designing and building things, planting and harvesting and, and farm work and of course, none of these uh, can be done by animals with four legs and even two arms or two legs and hunched back posture like apes have. But what about our childhood wishes for x-ray vision and supersonic hearing? How would these things be harmful for us? Dr. Benjamin Aaron is Professor Emeritus at George Washington University. He talks about hearing. Sound is appropriate for the world we live in, although Certainly other species tend to live in different spectrums of sound, like a dog perhaps can hear a much higher spectrum. But, you know, when a human ceases to be able to hear in the spectrum that we normally hear in and are considered partially deaf or maybe even totally deaf, that spectrum of sound to which we are born to hear is very important. It pretty much encompasses all that which provides safety. It gives us communication potential, which is terribly vital for the human. It provides satisfaction, such as hearing music. The tones of music that we hear that are satisfying to us tend to occur in our spectrum of sound to hear. And what about our eyesight? Dr. Anderson. Another thing we can think about is the eyes that have been designed to receive only the light wave frequencies of the electromagnetic spectrum, enabling us to read and enjoy visual images without interference by x-rays and microwaves and so forth. 
Also, the human retina has both rods and cones in it to sense uh, the light of both light and color in the enjoyment of God's creation. Dr. Aaron. The spectrum of light we see is only a very small part of the electromagnetic radiation spectrum, and that is probably beneficial to us from the standpoint of survival of our eyes. For instance, if you stare at the sun, in that spectrum, it'll burn holes in your retina. If you were able to see at other spectra, that is way out in the blue range or way up in the red range, I think you'd almost be overcome by the enormous amount of color data that your mind would have to process. While we all know how vitally important our hearing and sight are, we seldom consider the unpleasant workings of our body. Dr. David Menton is a retired professor of anatomy at Washington University School of Medicine. He turns our attention to a unique substance found in our ears. Earwax is technically called cerumen. It's a very unusual form of wax that uh, occurs in our ear. It's actually a filamentous wax. And so instead of being like the wax you might use in a candle, uh, this is a uh, filamentous wax. This wax has a very high electrostatic charge, and uh, as a result, it behaves very much like these electrostatic air filters that you can buy to use in your home to purify the air. They sort of almost magnetically trap dust out of the air through electrostatic charge. Well, that's really what our earwax is doing in part. It's uh, attracting dust which then uh, becomes uh, attached to the wax. The earwax also uh, has a remarkable ability to uh, keep insects out. <laughs> it apparently is noxious uh, or repellent to most kinds of bugs that might want to wander into that convenient uh, warm hole in the side of our head. So what happens when the wax needs to be removed? You'll notice we can't get our finger into our uh, external auditory canal. And that's a wonderful provision of God right there. Uh, if we could get our finger in our ear canal, we would quickly punch out our eardrums. The ear canal is smaller than our finger, and therefore, for the wax to be removed, there has to be a, a special mechanism. And that mechanism is very much like a people mover in an airport, you know, the kind of belt you stand on, and it moves you along without having to walk. In the ear canal, the skin grows sideways so that it kind of slides along like a people mover. And in this way, the wax and the debris that the wax catches can be actually carried right out of the ear canal to a region where we can get at it with a finger or Q-tip or whatever uh, <laughs> is handy and safe uh, for uh, removing wax from our ear. Another bodily component that we would never talk about at the dinner table is, well, let's let Dr. Menton describe it for you. Another thing that's so simple and almost disgusting in a way. We, we tend not to talk about it or think about it. Most people wince when I mention it, and that's mucus. <laughs> I've threatened to give a whole hour lecture on mucus, but uh, thus far I've spared people and not done that. But uh, we have mucus that lines our respiratory tree. The respiratory tree is really everything from our nasal pharynx, uh, where the air goes into our nose, and then it goes down through our windpipe or trachea. It then branches into the two bronchi that go into uh, each lung. And this unseemly substance is necessary to keep dust from accumulating in our lungs. When 
comes in, it's kind of like a sticky, soft substance, and the dust gets caught in it. And once again, we have to have a way to clean this filter and remove this dust and debris from uh, our airways. And this is done by a sort of a flowing of the mucus up towards the uh, mouth, the oral cavity. It keeps flowing. I, I liken it to the Everglades. You know, the Everglades are a real shallow river that you can hardly tell is flowing, but it is flowing along. And the thing that makes this mucus flow up and out of our lungs and respiratory tree is it rests on top of uh, little hair-like projections on the cells that line our respiratory tree, and those little projections are called cilia. And because mucus is thick, the cilia need a little help to move it out. So there's a marvelous provision in the lining of our airways where a watery-like substance is produced, and the mucus floats on top of that water layer. And the water layer is maintained at just the precise thickness that represents the length of the cilia at the height of their stroke. Uh, as all these little oars are, are going to move the mucus, uh, the mucus is floated so that just the tips of the oars or the tips of the cilia strike it. And if this water layer were too high, the cilia could not move the mucus because they wouldn't reach it. And if the water layer was too thin, was too low, then the cilia would get entangled in the mucus. This has to be maintained uh, at the most microscopically fine level. But in order for the cilia to work, they have to move in sequence. To make the mucus move, these cilia have to beat in a coordinated manner that's called a metacrinal rhythm. And although that sounds like a name people would have no experience with, most people, I think, have seen a metacrinal rhythm. If you've ever observed the wind blowing across a wheat field, the waves that you see in the wheat, uh, that's a metacrinal rhythm. Or sometimes people in a ball stadium do what they call the wave, where they all move their arms in a coordinated way, and you can see these waves of arms going across the stadium. And for the cilia to move this way is a matter of life and death. If they didn't beat that way, the mucus simply would not be removed from a respiratory tree, and we wouldn't live very long under those conditions. For that alone, it could be the end of life if the cilia didn't beat in this metacrinal rhythm. And if that weren't so, our whole respiratory tree would become uh, congested, and that would not be compatible uh, with life. We find the world in which we live was designed specifically for our use. Isaiah 45:18 tells us, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Dr. Aaron tells us that even our breath is measured by God. The composition of air, 21% oxygen, is, seems to be a very good oxygen content for us. We know from the medical standpoint that too much oxygen actually is deleterious to the body. People are known to get oxygen sickness, and uh, too little oxygen, of course, is obviously deleterious to the body. We call that hypoxia. The oxygen needs of the body are finely tuned to 21.5% oxygen in this world. Dr. Aaron says there's another aspect of the perfect body and environment, our emotions. If survival were the only issue, which 
the evolutionists would like it to be, uh, all these other little additions that God has built into us wouldn't have relevance. I mean, if survival were the only thing, we could be running around and doing dumb things, and there wouldn't have been a Mozart, and there wouldn't have been uh, any of the beautiful artistic things that have been done, and there's a higher plane that God intended us for, in my view, that the evolutionist approach simply doesn't satisfy. Obviously, I'm not so sure until God confronts us face to face that any of us will ever have the exact answer to all this. But I also have a feeling God sort of intended it that way because I think he states loud and clear that in every setting in which man involves, faith has to be a part of that. If man's going to come to God, he's got to come to him by faith. Thank you for joining us on today's broadcast on The Perfect Body. We trust your faith has grown through the information given on this program. Did you know that you can find hundreds of scientific topics to explore on our website? Check us out at www.icr.org. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.